Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday may 2nd 2008 this week we're up to episode 80 cliff comes to you from beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes of radio joe and here with me in the studio is my co-host the z-man cliff slotnick good afternoon joe it's always a pleasure to work with you good afternoon cliff and we've got the wingman at the controls chris boizel Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Looks like we've got uh, the technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line with us as well. Good morning, Dieter. Let's see if we can get him unmuted. Good morning. Uh, well, it's good afternoon, even in Pittsburgh. Good That's afternoon. It. Good day, wherever you're listening from. We get them get them in from around the world, Dieter. We'll bring you back in in a little bit. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. Pleasure. Great. Today's segments include the microband trivia question and part two with Dr. Richie Shoemaker, one of the men who is changing the rules, i.e. Connections What's News with Glenn Fellman, and then we will come back with the roundtable where we bring everybody back to round things up. We've uh, done quite a bit of work uh, this past week on the iaqradio.com website. Check out the blog, check out the uh, intro, and also... We put a link up to the biotoxin pathway, which has really been helpful to me. It's a diagram that uh, Dr. Shoemaker put together here that helps people understand a little better some of the uh, interaction between these uh, biotoxins and the human body. So if you get a chance, look at that. It'll help you follow along a little bit better. First, before we get started, we've got to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right, looks like people have figured out how to contact the show. We've got quite a few on here now, but uh, for those of you that haven't been on before, you just call 724-444-7444. Enter our show ID, which is 1547. Nowadays, you can just press 1 and join the show, or you can download the talk shoe software and uh, chat back and forth to each other or text messages into us. Talk shoe is T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com. They're the group that helps us 
put this show together. And again, you can go to our website and connect to the show also at www.iaqradio.com. We also appreciate suggestions and we answer questions. We've got a bunch that were emailed into us over the past week at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. By the way, I should mention we can give you the IAQ console renewal credits if you email me and request a quiz. That's coming along a little better. We've got uh, several people getting those right after the show. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let me turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Well, Joe and listeners, I'm sorry to report that we had no correct answers to last week's trivia question. Okay, the trivia question for Friday, May 2nd, 2008. We're looking for the subject of this definition. What is a toxic or poisonous substance produced by a living organism? Okay, back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. I'm surprised we didn't have, we had all those listeners on. No correct answer. Go to the iaqradio.com website, go to the trivia link, and answer the question. Get your prizes from uh, Cliff here, who uh, is the sponsor of the old uh, microband trivia question. All right, let's get a quick intro into what we did last week before we get started this week. Last week, we discussed some background issues with Dr. Shoemaker. We went over some vocabulary. We talked about some emerging capabilities in the medical community and, you know, some of the capabilities they have at their disposal now. Talked a little bit about the diagnosis of human illness acquired following exposure to water-damaged buildings. This week, we're going to quickly review some key points from last week and cover one area we didn't get into, which is the treatment of patients. Then we've got a bunch of questions that have been texted in or emailed to us from listeners. We're going to intersperse, you know, put a few of those in in the beginning, but then the whole second half of the show will be all questions from listeners. Hopefully we'll get to them all. Live with us today from Pocomoke, Maryland, and practicing there since 1980 is Richie Shoemaker, MD. Dr. Shoemaker's practice is dedicated to the diagnosis and treatment as well as a great deal of research. And I think we've got an intro clip one more time. Okay, Dr. Shoemaker, do we have you on the line? Well, good afternoon, Joe. It's nice to hear your voice. Oh, it's great to have you back. We really appreciate you doing a uh, doubleheader for us here. It's uh, a first on IAQ Radio, and uh, you're certainly uh, the, the best to have do it so far. We had a record on live, uh, live listeners last week, and the downloads were second best ever, but this week we're planning on beating that. All right, last week we discussed uh, innate immunity, how it is important, you know, an important key to understanding how biological agents in water-damaged buildings affect human health. We learned about innate immune presentation, how it can be altered with subsequent inflammatory illness, and 
how it is also different from acquired immunity. Okay, so how are we doing so far? You know, it's wonderful that you can put in just a few words what took me 10 or 15 minutes last week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it took me about an hour to figure it out. I had to go back and listen like you recommended, go back and listen to the previous show, and it all made a hell of a lot of sense once I listened to it again, and you did a great job. All right, let's quickly review real quick innate immunity, why it's important, and then if you could, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the biotoxin pathway. I've got it in front of me this week. And according to that pathway, some people are HLA susceptible and others are not. So we'll talk a little bit about innate immunity, recap that, and then if you could tell me what HLA is and why some people are susceptible and why others are not. I'd like to use the concept of two separate divisions of immune response. Uh, The innate immunity is, for today's example, the left hand and acquired or antibody formation is the right hand. Innate immune responses primarily are those that are the most evolutionarily conserved that uh, we have. And interestingly, they're no different from what some of the most primitive single cell organisms have. Whether you're a blue-green algae from three billion years ago or whether you're uh, Cliff Slotnick, we have to deal with particular antigens being presented to us from the environment. And quite frankly, if we don't deal with these antigens quickly, we're not going to survive to reproduce so that our babies can also worry about worrying about antigens. Specifically, the mechanism of innate immune responses begins with what's called pattern recognition. And while the acquired or antibody system is enormously detailed uh, and and very specific individual elements of CUV antigens can be identified, the pattern recognition system is much grosser. And basically it looks at, again, evolutionary conservation of a variety of kinds of compounds that organisms from given types all have. If you want to recognize a staphylococcus bacteria, it's nice to recognize a tychoic acid moiety. And and there are receptors that will identify that and go into action if tychoic acid happens to show up. It is important to recognize beta-glucans. And we have receptors called dectin receptors, a couple different kinds of those, that will go into action if beta-glucans show up. Same thing with other sugar protein moieties, uh, Glycoproteins is our word, especially mannose or a kind of sugar that is is used a lot by biological creatures. There's uh, N-acetylglucosamine and acetylated compounds. And interestingly, many different biological creatures share use of these same kinds of compounds. So primitive organisms need to respond to a signaling element, even though the whole molecule may not be readily Uh, separable, say, from one kind of fungus to another. But if a fungus is among us, there should be a mechanism to recognize a pattern and then respond. Innate immune responses turn on the signaling devices then that bring out the body's initial phase of inflammation responses. Once we detect an antigen, here's a battle plan. Whether it's an inflammation protein called a cytokine or complement or maybe a factor that turns on a gene, they all are linked under this rubric of innate immunity. It's a quite complex system, 
and it's for a system that's designed that once a signal is identified, an initial response follows, the responses to the response become multiplying. This ever-expanding, widening, multiplying, exponential cascade helps the organism respond to this antigen rapidly and overwhelmingly. If that is a good uh, event and the antigen is cleared, then everybody is happy and the innate immune system goes home for the night. If the antigen is not cleared, the innate immune hyper-response becomes the illness. Okay, let's one thing. What is HLA? In antigen recognition, we have immune response genes, and there's a couple different kinds: the the uh, histocompatibility locus A or human leukocyte antigen HLA are genes found on chromosome six, and there are 54 of these different gene structures that we've identified in in people of all races. And it's interesting that there's no difference among races, or between races, I should say, uh, regarding HLA. But specifically, the antigen identification is under control of HLA. And if there's a problem with antigen recognition under due to HLA, that same problem I mentioned to you of the innate immune response becoming the enemy will occur. It's like there's a giant hole in the... Uh, uh, the, the, the dragon scales, if you will. And if you're a little dwarf and you shoot an arrow through that hole, you'll take down the dragon. And that's kind of what happens uh, in people with exposure to water-damaged buildings. Not everyone has that hole in the armor, the hole in the scales. Uh, if you do, however, you're going to get hit. Well, the reason I ask that is we have a question from a listener. And what the question is, is can a HLA marker identify the type of chemical, biologic, and or allergenic stressor? Actually, no. HLA is a marker. It by itself does not diagnose a disease. And we use the concept from epidemiology called relative risk to help us with susceptibility. And specifically, what that means is if we look at how many people in our case group or the incidents in the case group uh, have a given HLA, we can give a number to that, and we divide it by how many people in our control group have that same HLA. So incidents in cases over incidents of controls gives a number. If that number approaches 2.0 and exceeds it, we then start talking about increased susceptibility. HLA doesn't tell you that there's a mold there. It just says that this is what the person has as a potential mechanism of identifying or not presence of antigen responsiveness. It is important to remember that there is outstanding research now going on that looks at the structure of these genes such that their particular amino acid sequence will tell us how an antigen really is recognized and why there may or may not be an effective uh, response of the organism based on HLA to that antigen. So someday we may be able to answer that question? Uh, researchers are, are making spectacular advances, uh, especially in, in some of the very unusual HLAs that I worry most about. Uh, in my jargon, is 4353 and 11352B. Uh, those two particular ones are associated with a much worse prognosis if we see them. Uh, but we're also now looking at how it is 
that many inflammatory processes overlap that share these particular uh, HLA uh, uh, haplotypes. Okay, let me try and uh, go a step further now. We've got this uh, biotoxin or toxin-producing organism. You've got HLA-susceptible or HLA uh, biotoxin, not HLA-susceptible. Those are the ones that people can remove from the body. They, they do pretty well. Some hit a nerve cell, and there's, a, I guess, an immediate reaction. Then on the chart, I see some are, there's a surface toll receptor to a fat cell, and then that goes down to the hypothalamus, thalamus, and you then have this section on reduced MSH, and there's a whole bunch of different, I guess, reactions as the result of that reduced MSH. Can you tell us what MSH is and why it is so important to this biotoxin pathway? Sure. Um, what I want you to know is that the link from, say, toll receptors, and, and the chart doesn't show dectins and mannose receptors, but it is the link of cytokine release following gene transcription initiated by docking, so to speak, of the foreign antigen, which can include a toxin, to a particular receptor. But the cytokine, once released, becomes the illness. The antigen sets off the problem. The cytokines are the warriors. Cytokine rise can attack the functionality of a receptor in the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. This is a real regulatory center where a number of, of very important hormones are made, and they all talk to each other. If you think in military terms, this is command and control of our immune responses. But if the pathway is damaged by cytokine response, and, and leptin we talked about last week uh, is, is the marker there, if leptin can't do its job and turn on production of MSH, MSH deficiency invariably follows. Now, most people that I see who've been sick for more than six months, once their MSH starts to fall through this inflammation pathway, don't have full recovery of MSH. Loss of MSH control of inflammation is a real serious clinical problem because now MSH is like the, the graphite rod or the dampening mechanism that shuts down inflammatory responses like crazy once they get started. With MSH, you control fever and, and uh, reactions in skin and mucous membranes, the respiratory tract and GI tract, uh, as well as in blood. Uh, and MSH interacts with a large number of other compounds. Without MSH being present adequately, fatigue is essentially uh, going to be there. Uh, chronic non-restorative, non-restful sleep is, is highly associated with MSH deficiency. Uh, chronic pain can also result because, remember, when MSH is made, at the same time uh, a parent molecule is split to release MSH, out comes beta-endorphin. And without beta-endorphin, you don't regulate pain responses. You know, if you look at your fibromyalgia patients where people got chronic diffuse pain and they really react to minor stimuli, it's not the stimulus makes them hurt. The stimulus is in a person with low MSH and they don't downregulate in the brain the neural response to whatever initiated that, 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 quote, painful response, end quote. So chronic pain syndromes are quite common in MSH deficiency. MSH is richly endowed in the gut, and many kinds of problems in GI physiology are controlled by MSH themselves. 
We talked briefly about autoimmunity last week in the gut and presence of gliadin antibodies. There's a real problem in children with mold illness and certainly adults to a lesser extent, but far more in the mold patients compared to the non-mold patients. MSH is the big player right here. Now, that's not celiac disease. Don't forget that. MSH also controls mucous membranes to keep out some very unusual and rare organisms that can make what's called biofilms to hurt us. They live uh, in the nose and can cause an awful lot of damage, these unusual multi-resistant, mostly antibiotic-resistant organisms uh, can hurt us. So MSH deficiency plays a big role there. Finally, MSH controls pituitary processes for hormone regulation themselves. So we think about uh, adrenal function, and that's controlled by ACTH, but MSH has a big role in controlling that. And abnormalities in ACTH and cortisol are found in about 40% of mold illness patients. The most common hormone abnormality we see has to do with antidiuretic hormone uh, relationship to salt in the blood or osmolality. And when you find a mold patient who has uh, frequent uh, thirst and frequent urination, and, and sometimes, strangely, Joe, they get these really weird electric shocks, static shocks all the time, be thinking of ADH problems due to MSH. Uh, funny headaches that act like migraine, be thinking about ADH deficiency and dehydration. A lot of your patients will come in and they'll tell you they get weak, woozy, or wobbly when they stand up. They're, they go to the cardiologist, get a tilt table test done, and they're diagnosed with some strange, you know, neurally mediated hypotension. It's usually just intravascular volume depletion due to ADH problems, which is due to MSH. Why do I focus on MSH? Because I know full well, without control of MSH, all the elements, while each one may not be present, all of them can contribute to a progressive chronic illness in the patients that I see. By correcting each one of those individually, we can compensate for MSH deficiency but because we don't have MSH available to give to you, we can't fix it definitively yet. Okay. And one more time, what MSH, the acronym MSH, stands for? Melanocyte Stimulating Hormone. Melanocyte, the melanocyte or melanin-producing cell in the skin uh, was this where this was first found. Uh, it certainly has a lot to do with other mechanisms, not to mention uh, weight control as well. Is this easy to measure? Uh, yeah, all you need to do is, is draw a, a blood test. Uh, we use a chilled tube. We draw a plasma sample or a lavender tube. And as soon as we draw it, we'll take it to the lab and spin down the lavender tube uh, in the, the, the chilled uh, centrifuge we use to make sure that uh, we don't uh, get a false reading by having warm tubes. We don't let it sit up on the counter. And as soon as it comes out of the blood, you've got to add a protective compound called a protonin uh, that prevents an enzyme from destroying MSH. These proteinases are ones that are blocked by a protonin so that when you draw MSH, put in your, your 0.5 or 0.25 cc's, depends on which lab you use, a protonin, and, and then uh, spin it down right away. Then you can freeze it and send it off anytime you want. Okay, and I assume that's a, a a really good thing with respect to your research, you're able to, you know, actually measure this pretty easily, and it sounds like fairly inexpensively. Uh, insurance companies have routinely covered that. We use the uh, LabCorp assay. Uh, it's been the most reliable. 
LabCorp has been playing some funny games with with uh, normal ranges about MSH. Uh, the actual normal range is 35 to 81 micrograms per mil. Uh, LabCorp changed that in September of, of 2006. They were getting swamped with people using my protocol. They had so many low MSHs, they decided a low MSH was normal. They, they, they combined <laughs> levels of cases and controls. That's crazy. You can't do that. Oh, my. All right, let's move on a little to uh, treatment because we didn't get to that last week, and I know you and I talked about not getting to that. I, I played around a little bit last night, went on to the uh, what is it, chronicneurotoxin.com website, and I did the uh, questionnaire. So I guess the first thing that you do is you have people do the questionnaire, and it's a you know, fairly lengthy questionnaire about your possible exposure to any number of biotoxins, I guess, and other medical questions. Then there's the, um, is it the visual acuity test, v, or VCT? It's called visual contrast. Visual contrast test, okay. Visual right. acuity is, is completely different. Okay, all right, visual contrast test, and I, I did that. Now, you've got people that have gone through that, and you get a yes on both that they have a possible uh, problem that, that needs followed up on. Take me down the road, if you could, kind of quickly from there. How do you handle it from there? When a new patient comes in, hopefully they've, they've looked either at chronicneurotoxins.com or biotoxin.info or even moldwarriors.com to get an idea of what our diagnostic process is. We're going to want to look to see that there are multiple symptoms from multiple body systems. You, you have to have multiple symptoms. You can't just say, I've got a cough and a cold, therefore I'm sick with the mold. That's, that's not enough. You need to have evidence that there is a uh, significant potential for exposure. And the, some of the questions that you answered, Joe, were primarily, you know, have you been uh, in, a, in a building where there's water intrusion and visible mold or musty smells? You know, have you been bitten by a tick and told you had Lyme disease? Did you, have you been in a freshwater lake in Florida and dodged the alligators to suck up some blue-green algae toxin? You know, the, the real issue is that if we think about these illnesses of innate immunity, which are all set off by the same mechanism, the symptoms in the labs are pretty much the same. So your exposure becomes critical. Uh, you can't say you've got Lyme disease if you don't have a tick bite somewhere along the way. And you can't have a blue-green algae illness if you haven't been around a lake with blooms of blue-green algae. Similarly, you can't have a mold illness if you're not exposed to the interior environment of a water-damaged building. Now, I'm going to put a little star on that last statement because I bet we'll get a question or two. I know if I practice medicine long enough, I will see someone that I can prove was made ill by exposure to molds and compounds uh, growing with molds in an outdoor environment compost pits or leaf piles, the fact that I haven't seen it yet and I've looked for it since 1998 doesn't mean I won't find one tomorrow. But believe me, I really do feel that to date uh, it's about 5,000 to none as far as my cases indoors versus cases outdoors. I feel pretty strongly that the potential for exposure is an indoor environment. If you have symptoms and potential for exposure, what we've got to do now is prove that you don't have exposure to something else. And the fancy way of saying this is differential diagnosis. Uh, if you've got diabetes that's way out of control or active liver disease or uh, if you have an 
undiagnosed and untreated neurologic condition. Uh, you can't blame uh, an illness on exposure to water damage building uh, alone. You've got to recognize that we're dealing with people here, and people can have more than one thing. Now, having said that, being exposed to water damage building does not give you diabetes out of control more often, does not give you hypertension more often, does not give you heart disease more often, uh, does not give you uh, any of these illnesses that are, quote, confounders. So we need to be very careful to look at each entity one by one. And that's where sorting what you have in and sorting what you don't have out comes in. Okay. Now, once you've teased all these things in and out, what's is there just one standard treatment protocol or are there no, several? We next, we're, we're, we're still you know, kind of playing around. If have we diagnosed the case, what we then do is ask for a visual contrast test done in person. The, the tests online are, are good, but you, I really feel that you have to have it done, you know, by someone who's got experience in giving these tests one-on-one uh, -on -one to make sure we're not looking at a computer variable or a contrast problem based on an Internet connection. And, and these things happen. Okay. Uh, and so the visual contrast test is next. Then we do the labs, and as this case definition comes out, you've got to have six elements to question uh, of whether or not they're present. A minimum of three is necessary for me to say you're a case. Okay. And after we've got these, this first tier of exposure and symptoms and lack of confounders, then you've got to have either visual contrast deficit uh, and MSH deficiency and HLA susceptibility and abnormalities of ADH and osmolality and ACTH and cortisol, We've talked briefly about those. But then the last one is elevation of a cytokine marker called MMP9. You don't have to have all six of these, but you need to have three. Now, if you've got those, the first step is to request removal from exposure. And if the patient can tolerate taking cholestyramine, to initiate cholestyramine, taking on an empty stomach. Uh, and, by the way, we've got some toxicology questions where they didn't use an empty stomach. We'll, we'll get to those in a minute. Okay. But specifically, on an empty stomach, uh, you take this drug four times a day. Uh, you've got to wait at least 30 minutes after you take this glue, which is what it is. Uh, it'll get washed through your stomach if you have some extra glass of water or juice or uh, even Gatorade would be fine. doesn't really make too much difference. But you wash it through the stomach and get it into the first part of the duodenum. There you've got a structure, which is a big opening for tubes that come from the pancreas as well as then from the liver. And the liver tube, the bile duct, is what we're after because the mechanism uh, to date that everybody who's done research and published on this talks about these biotoxins being uh, inhaled uh, or eaten uh, in the rare cases. I don't think that has anything to do with mold illness, by the way, but getting into the body being transported through blood or by cell to cell. I talked to you about it, what an ionophore was. It basically is this Casper the ghost thing that moves from cell to cell. But these compounds eventually end up in cells that line bile ducts. And those cells, curiously, have mechanisms to take these little compounds that can't be metabolized and can't be destroyed, and they dump them into bile. Bile is like the big sewer of the, of the, uh, of the liver and the sewer empties into the duodenum, and these little compounds, if there's no cholestyramine waiting to grab them, will be reabsorbed, and they circulate on going through. 
if cholestyramine is there, the structure of cholestyramine with this net positive charge on the side chain, this quaternium ammonium compound, about 1.43 angstroms in diameter, will lock into a shared electron ring of these uh, ionophore toxins that has an ionic radius of about 1.41 angstroms, and that's not my work, that's just what I've read about and other people have published on, and essentially it's an electrostatic interaction between toxin and cholestyramine that essentially puts a big old bulky anchor on this toxin so it no longer can be reabsorbed as it normally would further down in the small intestine. So this circulation from liver to intestine and back into the body is disrupted by cholestyramine, and the person can have a bowel movement, and out it goes. Okay, and I think you anticipate the first phase of treatment. All right, okay. And I think you anticipated two things. Let me just real quick interject. One was, and I want to get a couple questions while we're at it, how does the cholestyramine work to bind to the toxins? That's essentially what you just explained. Am I correct there? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's your questions that, that I had a chance to look at were really excellent, and I'm, I'm not surprised, you know, from what I've been reading on about you, and you did about me, uh, you guys are really, really A, number one, top of the list, and the real issue is that uh, I had a, two freezers full of people's bowel movements, and uh, one lawyer said, I must be fun at cocktail parties. <laughs> I had saved this, this stool in, in these two freezers uh, of people treated with cholestyramine because I desperately wanted to have an assay that will show before treatment we didn't find any toxin in stool and that after treatment with cholestyramine we did find it. Um, I did uh, kind of get a little bit of uh, criticism for using freezers that way, so... Uh, that was disposed of in, in, in proper medical hazardous waste situation. But because we didn't have an assay for toxin bound to cholestyramine that was available commercially, maybe we will someday, but the final proof of this whole mechanism would be to show bound toxin in stool. Haven't gotten there yet, don't have the commercial assay yet. So we've got to rely on, on, on literature that, that other people have published together with clinical changes to help us understand what goes on. Well, great. That answers another question that, that was brought up. So before we go to a short break here, I have one more. Um, there was a question about the the potential um, risk versus benefit of using cholestyramine and the fact that, you know, as I've been taught by Dr. Weil, the dose makes the poison. Just about anything can be a poison. Can you comment on the risk versus the benefits of using cholestyramine? Well, here, we need to have a little fun with Dr. Weil, because in this case, the dose initiates the poison cascade. The dose is not the poison, but in terms of cholestyramine, what we look at is the fact that these patients that I see, remember, we're not talking about irritation, we're not talking about infection, we're not talking about allergy, we're talking about an inflammatory illness, a systemic inflammatory illness, these people will not self-heal without doing something. And believe me, I have tried about everything in the world to substitute for cholestyramine because at least 5% of my patients will not want to continue because it can constipate you. It is a gut grenade four times a day to mix up this horrible yellow powder on an empty stomach. Who's got time for that? And more important, it's going to give you reflux and bloating and belching 
But after about a week or so, you start seeing an illness that you've had for two years start to clear and your brain starts working a little bit better. It suddenly is really good, ucky yellow stuff to take. <laughs> so the, you know, the, the, the risk benefit is that the benefit is, is zero without it. And with it, there's uh, 92% of my patients now, still 92%, have a 75% reduction of symptoms. We've got now a couple-year follow-up uh, on, on a very large number. Uh, and at five-year follow-up, we're looking at about 60 to 75% reduction of symptoms being persistent in patients we've treated. And oh. that's not something we see all the time. All right. So now... You mentioned Dr. Wow. We, we've unmuted him for a moment. Then I just want to give all the listeners a little, okay, give the listeners a little heads up. We may run over again this week a little, if that's okay with you, Dr. Shoemaker. We've got a great right list of people and questions. Um, I want to bring Dr. Wow in. Then we're going to go to Glenn Fellman. We're going to do a real quick IE Connections What's News. And first, I wanted to give Dr. Wow a chance if he had a quick question or comment. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you, you see that in pharmacology, when that dose response curve, when you are first experiencing a good effect, and in other words, you don't get a straight line dose response curve, you're on the left side of it. But then again, if you were to increase the dose, well, then you get to the other side of the dose response curve. And sure enough, now you can, depending on the dose, find a multitude of reactions, most of them are bad for you, and uh, certainly there is a dose that I can find that will kill somebody. But we are not talking about that part of the dose response uh, uh, at all. We are talking about the beneficial effect uh, of a drug, and uh, that indeed uh, does happen, yes. Okay. Let's go real quick, if you don't mind, uh, Wingman and uh, Dr. Shoemaker, if you can hold on with me for one minute, we're going to go to the IE Connections What's News segment. Good afternoon, Glenn. Do we have, uh, it's IAQ Paul. There you go. Hello, Glenn. Hello? Hello, Glenn. We've got, we didn't play the music today. We're running shit low on time, so let's just uh, roll on with, this is Glenn Fellman with IE Connections, What's News? And if you had a quick question, we'll do that, too. Uh, I'm going to make this real fast because this is a fascinating interview. I just want to say that if I'm ever invited to dinner over at the Schumacher residence, I'm going to ask that it be something that's carried in, given the description of what's kept in his refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So a quick lineup on a couple stories I wanted to cover today. First one is um, an article that you'll read in this month's issue of Indoor Environment Connections newspaper. ASTM has issued a new standard on vapor intrusion into structures. This came out of ASTM's E50 Committee on Environmental Assessment. The standard is called uh, number E2600, and the title is Practice for Assessment of Vapor Intrusion into Structures on Property Involved in Real Estate Transactions. And it uh, basically provides guidance for vapor intrusion testing. It's a very interesting guideline. It has four tiers of testing. Tiers one and two are essentially a... uh, sort of a visual uh, uh, assessment to, to rule out the issues of, of vapor intrusion, and if, if concerns come up there, then tiers three and four offer some more investigation and even mitigation steps. It's a standard that I think all of your listeners would be very interested in, and this, again, it can be, uh, you can get information on it at, at ASTM.org. 
I also want to briefly talk about two events that are coming up soon within the industry. One is next week. It's going to be my pleasure to attend it, and then perhaps we can talk about it the week after. It's a summit being put on by the Restoration Industry Association. It's uh, by invite only to their members and some select people. It's taking place in Silver Spring, Maryland, and a lot of listeners here are RIA members. They may want to take a look at that at the RIA website. The other event is the IEQA Annual Meeting and Exposition at the Indoor Air Quality Association. It's June 12th through the 14th in Tampa, Florida. Uh, there's some really exciting workshops, panel discussions, and technical sessions going on there. Uh, the exhibit hall is looking like it's filling out very nicely. So go to IAQA.org to get some information about that. Joe, I'm going to hand it right back to you to jump back into this show because it's a really great one. Thank you, Glenn. We appreciate that. And Dr. Shoemaker, we should have you back on the line now. Okay, I've got a bunch of listener questions here, and, and what I'd like to do real quick is I gave you some of these questions in advance. Is there one or two in particular that you really think we should address up front? Well, I, I think the issue has to do with the research basis of approach to this illness. And you had a couple questions about controls and a couple questions about studies. Until there were treatment protocols available, and cholestyramine is just the first. Each of the different elements that are shown to be potentially abnormal in the biotoxin pathway do require treatment to, because all of these have got to be addressed to, to restore health. But once health has been restored, even if a person may have persistent problem with MSH, we now are able to look at these patients prospectively. And that means that instead of I saw a building with 26 people in it and 30 that were not sick. Now we can take those 26 people and make them into not sick and take them right back to what a control should be for symptoms and baseline and the visual contrast. And they become the target element here. They become their own controls, and the variable we look at is time. Uh, and time of exposure can eliminate a huge amount of other potential confounders. So if someone is sick, say, from a water damage building, and, and, and we treat them and they become feeling pretty good, we can stop their drug, whatever they're taking, and they should be able to move around anywhere in, in, in their environment and not become ill until they come to a building that's water damaged. Now, if the water damaged building is going to make them ill, we then use that same person now as their own control and they're re-exposed. That really controls for so many different variables of patients, whether you're tall or sort of short or, or skinny or overweight or, you know, 50 or 30. You know, you eliminate you know, genders also controlled, races controlled, predisposing conditions are controlled, and everything is all the same. Then we can look at this one model prospectively, and that gives us the epidemiologic term risk. And that prospective approach is what we call the sine qua non. This is how you show causation. In all the arguments about mold illness that I've seen, it is the prospective reacquisition of illness with informed consent that gives you cause. It doesn't tell you what in the building that made you sick. It just says that something in the building made you sick. We would like to be able to have you guys come in and tell us what is in the building so we can then sort out individually what it is that makes people sick, I think we're going to find it's many different things make people sick. But looking at these questions as a whole, you know, 
causation theories and Bradford Hill suggestions. By the way, Bradford Hill never talked about criteria. He specifically uses seven different terms and never uses the word criteria just to have a little fun. Okay. But specifically, <laughs> the time interval controls are critically important. Secondly, beyond using the case approach versus control approach and then a prospective approach, we also have a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And in this double-blinded trial, we really are taking this developing body of literature to the next level. Because if you can't show a double-blinded trial with benefit, I don't think you convince anybody. Uh, Kundi, you mentioned, is one of the papers looking at causation theory, looks at a commonality of findings through the whole body of epidemiology. And that's what our studies are showing. So Kundi's very much one of my favorite guys these days. But the real issue that I see coming around to is that the blood tests that people have done, the symptom databases, the visual contrast databases, they all teach us using statistical methods of what should we be looking at in people who are well before they go into buildings, or if they work in moldy buildings and feel fine, go ahead and obtain some baseline parameters such that if you do get sick, you ought to be able to say, well, did my MMP9 or my C4A change? Because if it didn't change, it probably wasn't the building that did it. Okay, that's a perfect lead into a question from a listener, and Cliff will ask it. Right. Um, Dr. Shoemaker, what do water damage schools do to the health of our children? How prevalent do you think the problem is? And while you're at it, do you have any comment on something called the ACOEM mold statement? Well, I, I've been uh, very concerned about schools for, for years. I don't know about your county, but most of our county budget goes to public education. Uh, we look at the enormous cost of a building. Uh, around here, they use flat roof construction a lot. We have enough weather coming in off the Atlantic Ocean that it's not unusual that these flat roof buildings will develop a leak. And then the question comes, what's it cost to do preventive maintenance on the buildings, and what's it cost to keep them up before the leak arises? Our school district is pretty strapped for cash, and we see a less amount of money spent on maintenance compared to, say, a school district that might be better off. And remember, we've got Ocean City in, in, in our county, which is a huge generator of money on, on the, um, in Maryland. So we're better off than most. Imagine a poor school district that didn't have uh, the money even for the band teacher, the music teacher. So maintenance is a giant issue. Uh, schools have a much greater incidence of young people compared to non-schools. And it sounds silly to talk about that, but in our pediatric mold illness population, we find a far greater incidence of these unusual autoimmune phenomenon uh, appearing uh, gliadin antibodies and cardiolipin antibodies and weird-looking arthritis. We see so many children diagnosed with attention deficit uh, and behavioral abnormalities and learning disability when they're just moldy. Even worse is the school teacher who's got 25 kids in a classroom that should hold 17. Uh, she's having to bring things from home and pay for things on her own because the school district doesn't have money for her and she's got her own family and husband to take care of, and she's taking work home, and she's stressed and pushed like crazy, and she starts getting tired, not knowing there might be a potential microbial problem in the school. 
who's going to blame it on the school first off? By the time she sees maybe that there's now a leak and there's buckets in, in the, the front hallway and wet carpet that smells real funny, who do you get to take care of it? The school teacher as an individual is powerless. We have some unions of school teachers, quite frankly, that are not proactive helping the individual teachers. And the teacher says, well, I'm mad. This building made me sick, and I can prove it's the building. And they say, I'm going to sue you. Well, well who do you sue? <laughs> and workman's comp is about all there is. Right. So some of the legal things the school teacher has are really reduced. So uh, lots of, of, of young brains being hurt, lots of, lots of young bodies getting hurt more easily than adult bodies uh, is a real problem. Uh, demands made on teachers, I think, are, are really inappropriate. And then who defends the teachers? Because the investment in a teacher is, is pretty substantial. So our school problems, uh, school water issue problems, a, a big deal? Yes. Is it 25% of the schools? Uh, I saw that number from OSHA. I have no idea how much it is. But in the end, Joe, when, when you and I are, are, are turning up daisies in the grave, it is our children that are the markers of how well we did as parents and how well we did as a society. And if we start raising moldy kids, uh, golly, you know, what, what's, what's going to happen? Heck, they're probably putting tattoos on themselves next. <laughs> All right, I've got another one. Um, now, I, I want to add to this one. It was a question that was texted in. Regardless of the details and the precise logic, the confounders and other criticisms of any new endeavor, what accounts for the improvement with cholestyramine and similar when other treatments fail? And I, I want to add something to that. Would, would cholestyramine assist someone who had, um, let's say they had a f too much uh, medication in them as opposed to a biotoxin or too much of some other kind of uh, chemical um, toxin in their system. Is it helpful for them as well? Cholestyramine has been uh, recommended for use for a huge number of, of chemical poisonings. You know, it's the only poisoning we have for dioxin, for the only antidote for dioxin poisoning. You know, that poor guy out in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine with all the pockmarks on his face and near death, too bad he didn't call me. We could have fixed him pretty quick. PCBs, DDTs, uh, DDEs, any number of, of, of toxins, uh, toxic chemicals are bound to cholesterol. I call it glue. Uh, I really do mean that. Uh, you can't take it with food. Bad things will, will, will follow that. You just won't be absorbed. Um, it is a situation that how do we look at improvement when you give cholesterol to somebody? Um, it will never be absorbed. It doesn't add anything to you. It only removes something uh, and if you're better, after cholestyramine, it is safe to conclude by the basis of mechanism of this drug's effect that you pulled something out you know, or something that was dumped into the intestine uh, no longer is there to hurt you. The best of demonstration of this works has to do with the toxicity of one of the anti-inflammatory drugs for rheumatoid arthritis called Areva. Uh, it's not used too much anymore because it did have a lot of toxicity, but the breakdown product of Areva was called the M protein, which just lasted forever in the body. And wonderful studies done with cholestyramine show that it bound to the M protein rapidly. It blocked enterohepatic recirculation. And this prolonged forever and ever half-life of the M protein essentially is truncated like crazy once you start with cholestyramine. 
Post-thiamine is just the first step of treatment. It's certainly not the last step. Okay, good. And that's something I wanted to get into maybe in a moment here. But let's, let me ask another question that was texted in here. Um, there's a question about chemical sensitivities via, versus biotoxin illness. And, and I'm going to tie that in with another question that or comment. Um, at some point, you and Dr. Claudia Miller were talking about how to collaborate. Now, she works with multiple chemical sensitivities. So I guess those two questions kind of tie together. Can you comment on chemical sensitivities and biotoxin or mold illness? And are you doing any work with Dr. Miller? Well, it would be an honor if I were to work with Dr. Miller. She is uh, kind of the, the, the queen bee, if, you, if you'll be uh, permitting me to let me use that term. She's been doing this for, for a number of years and has a database much, much larger than, than I have. I only have about 500 patients who have significant chemical sensitivity, uh, and some have severe chemical sensitivity to the point that they pretty much live in a bubble and eat three or four foods, and that's about it. Some aren't quite that bad. Um, but every one of my patients with chemical sensitivity that I've seen to date has had uh, an initiating event of being exposure to a water-damaged environment. Now, I'm not saying that, that uh, the only source of illness that lends up with chemical sensitivity uh, is, is exposure to water-damaged building. That's just all I've seen. And, and believe me, I've seen a, a number of people who thought, formaldehyde was their problem or something else and something else. When you start going back through the history, understanding that's kind of looking through the curtains and mists of time of what can we really find, the potential for exposure really is there. The unifying factor in mold illness patients and in chemical sensitivity patients, um, to me, is, is very promising, and that is low levels of another neuroregulatory hormone called VIP, or vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. Uh, the work that Dr. Petska and his group has done, boy, have they done great work over the years in Michigan State. Uh, in the study I'm thinking about, they looked at direct neurotoxicity uh, of, of stachytoxins to olfactory neurons, or nose neurons, basically, uh, and, and, and how this was developed in an animal model. We see the same kind of thing because the olfactory neurons uh, will first uh, migrate uh, in part to the brain in the hypothalamus where there's a large nucleus where these neurons uh, are kind of collated and, and summarizing, uh, summating uh, their experiences, so to speak. And the neurotransmitter there is vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. And the hypothesis is, was there inhalation exposure, olfactory nerve injury led to subsequent hypothalamic neuron or nucleus injury related to a loss of VIP. Now, we also have inputs from retina into this same nucleus. So it's possible that exposure across the retina and through the nose are contributing uh, to some of the problems that people have with mold illness. Chemical sensitivity often will involve uh, visual disturbances as well. So it's an interesting hypothesis. We are going to be applying to the FDA next week for an IND to use replacement VIP uh, in some of our severely ill patients, uh, and we're hoping to eventually extend that to MCS patients, because I honestly feel that we can use this, A, safely, B, effectively, and gosh, what a tremendous improvement it would be to the quality of life for an MCS person to actually be able to walk into a supermarket without getting sick. 
Okay, great. Now, I've got a couple other ones I'd like to try, and I've got about four real quick. I hope we can kind of go, you know, yes and no, or it's a too tough of a question to answer that quickly. Go to this reference for more information if we can do that. Okay. All right. Uh, one is, in your book, Mold Warriors, there was a reference to forthcoming data on acute mold exposure and subsequent rapid rise in C3A. Is that data now published? Yes, we uh, presented that at your IAQA meeting in, in October in Las Vegas, looking at C3A and C4A. Uh, as far as being peer-reviewed, uh, that's, that's in the works. What we did first was to publish a paper in January of 2008 on C3A and C4A in acute Lyme disease. And we're looking at the mechanisms of C3A rise uh, as being vital in the innate immune uh, responses. Okay. Next one, Cliff. Do you have any suggestions for the patient who gives this primary doctor the biotoxin lab order sheet, a doctor who may know very little about biotoxin illness, just dismisses the need for the lab work and seems to think that the patient is just overly stressed? Yeah, I, I, I hear that too often. Um, I honestly feel the doctor-patient relationship should be based on respect and trust. Uh, when someone comes to me with information that I don't know anything about, uh, my my response is not, uh, you're an idiot, don't bother my time. My response is, gee, I don't know that, let me look. Um, I, I don't have a lot of respect for physicians who know so much they dismiss something uh, that is well represented in peer-reviewed literature out of hand. That's not how we should be doing primary care medicine in the United States. Okay, and how do they, what, what, do, what do they do then? Take, go to someone else, I guess, is the best Absolutely. answer. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. You know, the, the way the, the world is, is that, you know, if a doctor doesn't see a patient, he doesn't get paid. Okay. Uh, and if he continues to treat patients with disrespect, then he should not get paid. There will be somebody else. All right, I want to go to a text question that came in early today, and we want to get that to Cliff. Um, doctor, uh, the question is, if you can, for prospective patients, please ask what is the criteria for treatment with EPO. I'd like to know if you could define EPO, if you know what it is, and for a prospective patient, define what the criteria would be for treatment. And maybe we could give them a reference to go to because I'm sure that would take a while to actually discuss. Let, let, let me try to hit it in, in, in three sentences. Okay. Specifically, I've talked to you about C4A being this complement activation product that changes all kinds of things in blood flow and inflammation throughout the body. Lowering C4A in some people with the worst gene uh, representation is usually extremely difficult. EPO or Procrit does that and can do it safely. EPO is a drug that's not FDA approved for treatment of high C4A. Uh, we presented two papers, one to the CDC sponsored chronic fatigue group uh, in January of 07 and one in November of 07 on mold patients. Each of these were IRB approved studies where we safely used EPO in people who had brain abnormalities, and we talked about what those last week, and high C4A, where nothing else had worked. I would never recommend anybody thinking about using EPO until they've exhausted all elements of treatment before they get there. Once they get to the point where EPO is required, then you, it's an experimental protocol that must be followed exactly. It does work. Uh, it's not FDA approved. Okay. I recall, and this is a question that was emailed to us. I recall in Mold Warriors, you opine that CFS is a biotoxin, or in biotoxin patients, 
is the result of muscle tissue being forced into the anaerobic cycle due to immune complexes clogging capillaries, thus having less ATP production. Martin Paul describes in several publications his opinion that CFS is the result of damage due to mitochondria due to peroxynitrate, since peroxynitrate is also produced in biotoxin patients due to inflammation. Do you think this mechanism also plays a role with biotoxin patients? I've worked in the chronic fatigue uh, arena for, for a number of years. In 2004, Marty Paul and I talked about a research model for investigating his thoughts about reactive oxygen species uh, in chronic fatigue and other kinds of illnesses. Uh, we look at the conversion of citrulline to arginine following exposure to a precipitating event uh, as Marty said, we would show us the, the, the response. It didn't. Uh, I had the, the pleasure to sit beside Marty for four days uh, in October, August excuse me, of 07, uh, talking about chronic fatigue. And we went back and forth. Uh, Marty is a wonderful guy. He's a very smart Ph.D. Uh, he's not a physician. He's never treated his first patient. Uh, we are part of a group that's looking at his model uh, together with some others, uh, looking at where does chronic fatigue come from. In chronic fatigue, you will find a gigantic segment of patients who have a biotoxin illness with capillary hypoperfusion, the mechanism. Uh, is there contribution of reactive oxygen species? I'm sure there is. Having seen patients improve uh, in the vast majority of times with ignoring reactive oxygen species, I'm not so sure that it takes primacy here. But my opinion of his uh, illness paradigm is that he's a real smart guy and we really need to pay attention to what smart people say. Let's test what he says, and when he comes up with another model, let's look at it. But we've got to have an animal model and a research model that makes sense before we get IRB approval to test it. Okay, I got another quick one here. Um, what's the best, no, that's not the one I wanted here. Is there any lab work available to test the blood for mycotoxins and mycobacterias? Uh, Bruce Ferguson from Envirologics in Portland, Maine, uh, I think has, has really brought this, this question along a lot, lot further. Uh, he had a nice assay for satrotoxin and roradin. Uh, I worked with him for a while, five, six years ago, and we showed pretty good uh, results in our initial phase. He then started working with Dr. Brazel and then Dr. Strauss and Dr. Dearborn, each one of whom has published a paper using Envirologic assays showing the ability to detect satrotoxin and roradin in cases where people are exposed to buildings with stachy, not found in patients not exposed to water-damaged buildings or to uh, known stachy. So, yes, there is a research assay available. Yes, it's been validated. Uh, no, it's not available commercially. I don't know of any commercial assay available for mycobacteria uh, the work we're doing with mycolactones, which is one of the mycobacteria toxins that quite frankly scares the hell out of me, uh, is done with a PCR assay. Uh, it, that's, again, an experimental approach. Um, we're just seeing these new creatures literally coming out of the mud, and it is, it's frightening to me that we never had those, say, in the Chesapeake Bay that we knew of uh, forming mycolactones until a couple of years ago. And, and the pattern of illness I get to see uh, in, in environmental illness is changing rapidly. The analogy to that has to do with equatorial Africa and South America, 
where a particular mycobacteria called invadens is causing Borrelia ulcer to cause a lot of disability. Uh, interestingly, topical cholestyramine works beautifully on that ulcer. So maybe we'll see a change as time goes by. Okay. okay. Cliff? Uh, another question from a listener. If a person limits their exposure to a chronic water damage area of a building to only an hour or two day, per day, five days a week, can their body completely heal without the need for medication? Well, boy, there, there's so many, so many paragraphs to, to go through to answer that question. Number one, this is not a dose-response situation, so it's not a matter of an hour or 30 minutes or 10 hours or something else. Uh, it is a matter of what is the status of innate immunity in this person. For someone who has been sick from a water damage building because of genetic susceptibility and prior illness with low MSH, if they go into a water damage building for 20 minutes, we can show a physiologic change in blood with testing a couple hours later. So in that person, 20 minutes is too long. For those who have not been ADL, who have no genetic susceptibility, they can work and play in the, in the moldy buildings all they want. And while some, rare some, will have an illness, it is much easily treated if it does occur, but most people, about 75%, will not develop an illness. So in order to answer that question, we need to know a few other things. Who are we talking about? What is their prior exposure? But if they've been sick before, this is a critical issue. They need to know what the monitoring and what the measurements of compounds in an environment is before they go walking in there. Uh, there was a question about how do you measure mycotoxins in, 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 in heating and air ducts. Yes. Uh, good, very important one. Um, the only thing that, that is available commercially that I know of is ERMI. We talked a lot about ERMI last time, and, and, and smart people are going to argue about ERMI. I found it to correlate very nicely with human health. That was just the uh, acronym police. <laughs> I was going to say, there's been a lot of those today. <laughs> they finally they finally got out of the, uh, the stop and go and uh, <laughs> pulled you over. Ermy's the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index, but we've got to uh, keep rolling. But Ermy wouldn't tell you if there were mycotoxins or mycobacteria at this point, would it? No, no way. It wouldn't tell you about actinomycetes or endotoxins or proteinases or hemolysins wouldn't tell you about a whole number of things. Just a bunch, um, just some specific genera or species of mold. Right, and going back to Bradford Hill, one of the things Hill makes, uh, his comments looking at epidemiology, is that absence of knowing everything about a subject is not an excuse not to proceed based on what you can identify, and you do know. You know, you do the best you can with what you got. Okay, I'm going to ask one more, then we're going to the roundup for just a quick roundup. About We'll get about four minutes. Uh, one of the listeners has been texting in. They want to know, and we asked earlier, but we didn't get to it. What's your opinion on the ACOEM uh, mold statement? Well, I have been very critical of ACOM's statement. I do not think it's based on any treatment data from people. It's based on significant speculation. Uh, it, it is one uh, that our group has criticized heavily in a peer-reviewed published paper in 2006 uh, in, in the neurotoxicology and teratology. Uh, it comes up every time I'm in a deposition, someone wants to quote ACOM. Uh, I really think that this is a disgrace that uh, non-academic solutions are, are being uh, in, in imposed on people by, by judges and juries based on horribly flawed science. Uh, ACOM needs to retract their statement. 
They need to apologize for having injured so many people for so many years. And bank, frankly, they need to pay for the damage they've done. Well, can't be any more concise than that. Let's go to the roundup, Chris. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw All right. Before we go to Rawhide, I just want or to the roundup. I just want to make sure that uh, our listeners know that any questions we didn't get to, please send them to me again. We'll see if we can't work something out. We've already talked to Dr. Shoemaker about possibly coming back this summer, and uh, we'll do our best to get answers for your questions. Let's move around the table here, and we'll start with Dieter. Dr. Dieter, any questions or comments? Uh, yeah, I. Uh, from what I'm hearing is uh, that we uh, point the finger at uh, mold. So <clears throat> do I understand correctly that there are very specific biologically active compounds produced by molds, which are then most likely inhaled? I guess you, they could get through the skin too, but by and large inhaled, and then they uh, do havoc to the patient, to the person. Is that the way we are kind of seeing it? Or is the mold perhaps only an indica in a in a wet building? In triple quotation marks, I would expect to find a heck of a lot more than quote only molds, yeah, bacteria, and for that matter, other chemicals. Is the mold is it very very specific that we can find it and identify it? Or may that only be a marker to tell us this is a bad building in this building, by and large, when the right, or for that matter, the wrong people get in there, they will have a reaction, they will show disease. I think your question has at least three different heads to it. Oh. We know there are specific compounds that are found either on fungal cell walls or made and exported outside of cell walls by fungi, they cause specific inflammatory response. Okay. One of the nice work that I saw just recently came out of Dr. Rand's group from, uh, from Canada with his immunohistochemical and immunocytochemical detection of particular antigens from spores of stachy uh, being isolated in lungs and in alveolar macrophages leading to this whole process of antigen presentation. Uh, certainly, uh, animals having breathed spores can show, you know, a thousand-time amplification of pro-inflammatory cytokines following uh, exposure. So yes, there are elements and fragments of spores and spores, uh, as well as toxins that can cause trouble. Having said that, I think that the role of other compounds for which presence of enhanced amounts of molds indoors compared to outdoors is a marker. It means that we will find actinomycetes and bacteria and a whole host of inflammagens that I think are the far greater role I think mycotoxins are just a drop in the bucket. To that this that was my hunch, too, yes. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. All right. Glenn, any questions or comments? Uh, just a comment that, you know, this show has been so enlightening, I think, to so many of your, your listeners just watching the, um, the comments on the screen and the talk chat part of it as well. 
And uh, just want to encourage uh, uh, Joe and Cliff to continue on with these types of topics. Uh, I think they're very, very compelling. They bring in a wider audience. I want to thank uh, Dr. Schumacher for being with us today. It was a great program. And uh, let you get back to a few listener questions while you still got a minute or two. Okay, great. Let's go to Cliff. I've got, Joe, both a question and a comment, and I think I'll do the comment first. It really wasn't my comment, but it's really, I think, speaks to what Dr. Shoemaker is accomplishing. Actually, this is probably the nicest compliment that I think I've ever seen come up, you know, either in email or on the screen. And the comment was really that this person thought you should be nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine based on the work uh, that, that you're doing. So I, w I wanted to get that in. What my question is, is really deals with what I would call MCS, multi-chemical sensitivity, or mold crazies. You know, conventional medicine tends to think that MCS is a disease that uh, attorneys made up. And I think they question whether or not mold-related illness really exists. I think that your position is uh, far different than that. And I guess, have you ever seen people that have come through your practice that you believe their illness is, is psychosomatic? Uh, yes, I have seen people who uh, come here who think that they have a mold illness and, and, and say they've got a mold illness and they've got some kind of antibody test saying that they've got a mold illness, who don't meet any element of the case definition that I have at all. So in terms of are there people who have uh, stress and depression that could have some of these uh, elements present? Yes. Do stress and depression have all the elements we need? No, never. Does stress cause these inflammatory things? No, never. Does stress exist? Well, Hard for me to say, you know, I kind of think I thrive on stress. Someone else might get crushed by it. Is psychosomatic illness something that we can define medically? No, I know of no biomarker for psychosomatic illness. But having said that, a lot of times people will talk themselves into an illness, and if that is a talk and not a physiology, they won't have the blood test turn positive. You can't take the blood test. So if you think it's psychosomatic and you're ready to dismiss the patient, do the patient the respectful thing and do the testing first. The testing is not expensive. It's readily available in all labs across the United States, and it's reproducibly reliable. Excellent. Excellent answer. One other question. that I'm going to go with a um, – it's my turn, so I'm going with a, a texted question I think is a great one I didn't get to. The biotoxin pathway shows that in most people, biotoxins are removed from the body by the functions of the liver or the immune system. Is it possible that if a person who was exposed to an extremely high amount of biotoxins or was exposed to biotoxins over a period of several months or years can become ill, even if they have a healthy immune system? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I think that that question really summarizes uh, acute and chronic illness. We know that some people will have massive point source exposures and become ill. Uh, that's kind of more of an accidental mold illness kind of thing as in workman's comp terms. The much more common presentation is a chronic low-level exposure to a mixture uh, of bad things, uh, which will include some mycotoxins and all kinds of other things in a water-damaged building. Well, that's sort of why I saved it for last. I thought it was a great way to wrap things up, and I really want to express my appreciation for you joining us. And I also want to, before we go, is there anything in particular that we forgot to ask that you'd really like to get out on this segment? I think the most important thing is that 
physicians and patients need to trust the data. We can do statistical analyses of symptoms and show that symptoms really do correlate with lab abnormalities. But now that we have objective parameters, no one who feels well should know, should not know what his baseline is, and certainly anyone who's sick should know what his baseline is. Get the data. It doesn't take much time, and it's something that is critical to how you feel next year. All right, and one last is always our, your contact information, how people can get more information and or contact uh, you or your, your people there. Uh, the office no, phone number is in Maryland, 410-957-1550. Uh, I would suggest that people take a look at each of the three websites we have, uh, chronicneurotoxins.com. Uh, it's been around since 2001. A newer one is... Uh, biotoxin.info, and that's not .com, that's .info. It's kind of a new one to me. Hmm. And then uh, moldwarriors.com, in case someone wanted to read about uh, looking at, at mold warriors. There is a new book coming out called Surviving Mold, and I sure do want you to read a copy before that goes to press, Joe and, and Cliff, because that's one I need to talk about. And, and it is, what do you do to survive after you've been found to be moldy and after you're treated? Now what? We're looking forward to it, and I know Cliff already started on the first chapter, so, <laughs> or at least right. the, the, the transcript on the first chapter. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Schumacher. I, I get that pronunciation. I like the way Glenn and Dieter pronounce it, so let me get that proper here. <laughs> you know, my mama would, would, would come after you. It's Shoemaker. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have a good day now. All right. Thank you very much. All right, I Bye-bye. want to thank Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And last but not least, I want to thank uh, Glenn Feldman for joining us today in the IE Connections What's News segment. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, the wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls here, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Great job out there today, and thanks to the HIF guys. You know who you are and gals for joining us. Join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.